As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi there. Hi, Tim. So uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, a whole slew of kind of recent stories and developments coming out of the world of embryology uh, and, and molecular biology, really. Um, before you, you switch off, we'll, we'll keep it nice and uh, straightforward for the, the lay <laughs> non-scientists like myself to understand. What, you mean you're not fascinated by embryology? <laughs> fascinated yes confused very much so but hopefully we're going to try and cut through some of the uh, the jargon and, and make it make sense um i guess and the reason we want to talk about this is because uh you know people it doesn't get much of attention in the in the kind of mass stream, mass media the mainstream news world people are understandably preoccupied by things like the pandemic or you know the looming energy crisis the war in ukraine um big political stuff like that but what 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 we want to try to shed a light on is that all of this kind of turmoil hasn't stopped uh, a, a large number of scientists in labs around the world kind of quietly pushing the envelope and uh, and pushing what is possible in this in this really kind of fast changing world of embryology and, and biology. Yeah, I I think it's interesting how uh, just quietly working away in labs, you know, this immensely powerful and successful science is continuing um, and with a lot of international collaboration um, teams in many different countries in the states in Europe uh, the UK being one of the world leaders in this field uh, but also China and uh, Israel is another important player so um, advances are just steadily going on and uh, leading to the most um, remarkable uh, possibilities as as we look to the future. Hmm. So we thought it, it would be good to just review some of the recent news items and then perhaps step back a bit and and just talk a bit about you know where is all this science going? How is it being regulated? Where might it go in the future? Yeah, um, and uh, we'll try and as I said, we'll try and, and try and make it as comprehensible as possible. Um, but let, let's start with with a story uh, which was from 2021, so a year ago, um, uh, published in in the kind of very respected journal Nature. Uh, the headline is "Lab-grown structures mimic human embryos earlier stage yet," 
uh, and as far as I understand, you're going to tell me where I've misunderstood this, but as far as I understand, it's basically scientists have used human stem cells to kind of create uh, an embryo-like growth or structure um, for the first time. That's right. So um, the human embryo starts as a single cell. Um, Fertilisation normally takes place actually in the fallopian tube where the sperm and the egg meet. And then very rapidly over the first few days, uh, the cells multiply and you end up with a little ball of tissue with a strange name, the blastocyst, uh, which then uh, is wafted down the fallopian tube and then eventually implants into the wall of the womb. And um, what happens is that it's possible to reproduce this within uh, a test tube uh, but as we'll come back to, so far, uh, 14 days, the limit at which you've been allowed to grow embryos in the, in a laboratory has been 14 days. The, this recent uh, advance is in, instead of creating a human embryo from a sperm and an egg and then allowing them to grow, scientists have been trying to uh, synthesize artificially an embryo using a collection of stem cells from different sources and getting them, uh, putting them together in a little ball. And what they've shown is they've been able to create an artificial blastocyst, um, which is actually very similar to the genuine uh, article developing from a sperm and an egg. So this is obviously quite a kind of significant scientific advance in that, you know, throughout all of human history, the only way to start life was to have a sperm from a man somewhere and an egg from a woman somewhere and to combine them. And and whereas this is now, you're saying, human stem cells. Should we just quickly explain what are stem cells? How are they different to a sperm and an egg? Yeah, so the, the astonishing thing about human biology is you start with a single cell, the fertilised uh, egg, which is simply one cell with a nucleus and uh, cytoplasm and a layer around the outside and uh, and yet from that single cell you end up with all the types of cells that you get in the human body and it turns out there are about 200 completely different types of cell within the human body you know ranging from brain cells skin cells gut lining cells bone cells hair you know you know you name it and all of those completely different kinds of cells are come from a single uh cell the, the the one cell embryo and and they are then continually reproduced so we continue to make sources of brain cells and we continue to make sources of skin cells of um, blood cells uh, and so on and, it, and these are called stem cells which are just continuing to reproduce throughout the whole of our lives uh, as 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 cells die uh, we're continually making new cells so by taking some of these uh, human stem cells which have been previously obtained in different from different roots and putting them back together the idea is to try and recreate a synthetic embryo i guess it's worth noting um that this blastocyst this kind of very early stage embryo is never going to be able to grow into an actual person uh it's not it, it's more of a kind of facsimile a a, a a copy of of an actual human blastocyst which has which has grown naturally from from fertilization well that's true at this stage um in other words it's a pretty close copy but it's got some clear uh 
differences, abnormalities from a genuine blastocyst. And that's why people think that if you were to put it into somebody's womb, that it would miscarry, that it would not continue to develop into a, a normal human baby. Um, as far as the scientists go, this is actually an advantage because it means that it isn't covered by the laws and the regulations which cover normal human embryos. Mm. And so um, that means effectively that they would be able to carry on doing what they want to do in the lab uh, without uh, worrying about the laws. And um, in particular, one of the major aims here is to try and create tissue which can be used for medical purposes. Mm, which that kind of leads us on to to another one of the stories you wanted to pick up on, which was um, uh, coming out of a startup uh, called Renewal Bio, which is a biotech company in Israel, which um, says that it is it is planning to or hoping to to uh, create kind of clone embryo versions of people in order to to harvest tissues to then uh, use in transplant treatments. Yeah. So. Again, t taking this idea, the idea is that I could create this embryo-like structure in a lab which was based on my own DNA. Um, and as someone put it, it's a kind of mini-me, uh, to use that, that idea, a tiny little replica of myself. Uh, this is growing in a lab somewhere as a collection of cells, but then it could be allowed to grow and grow. And then I could use this as a source of um, tissue for, for being transplanted back into me. And the great advantage is that because it would be genetically identical to me, there wouldn't be any problem about rejection. So, for instance, if I was developing kidney failure uh, in the lab, this little thing growing that you could uh, remove the, the developing kidney cells in this structure in the lab and grow them up into a kind of or kidney-like structure and then transplant into me in order to cure my kidney disease. Hmm. And we should explain for people who aren't aware, you know, at present when you have a, a transplant of someone else's kidney, um, one, you have to work quite hard to get a very particular person's kidney so it's not rejected. And even then, often transplant patients have to take drugs for the rest of their life to prevent their own immune systems from attacking the kidney as a kind of foreign substance which has a whole bunch of nasty side effects so this would be quite radical kind of shift if possible yes at one level it would be a very major advance in medicine um, to be able to have virtually an unlimited supply of different kinds of tissue so whatever it was that you needed skin transplant you know because you had a terrible burn or maybe you've got some dementia and you've got need new brain cells or memory improve your memory maybe you you know you've got cardiac problems you need to so you have this sort of endless supply of new uh, tissue which is going to be matched to you and so immediately here there is a fantastic commercial potential I mean across the world the billions of dollars that are spent on medical treatments particularly like transplants and so on so that if a company a private company was able to make this kind of sophisticated biotechnology work you know you could be charging tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars for compatible tissue and so um, there's a huge amount of venture capital um, money going into <clears throat> many of these companies 
and, uh, and many of the scientists have have bought um, shares in their own startups in the hope that they might end up not only being very famous scientists but also making a great deal of money. Hmm. Some of the quotes from the lead scientist, um, who's called Jacob Hanna, in in this Israeli um, firm are quite astonishing to me. I mean, to read, he he said this in in the story about how they would use the, the these tiny um, human kind of cloned human embryos to to grow organs. Quote: We view the embryo as the best three D bioprinter. It's the best entity to make organs and proper tissue. The vision of the company is. Could we use these organized embryo entities to have early organs to get cells? We view it as perhaps a universal starting point. So he's really kind of saying this is this is this is very much creating a an embryo of kind of ambiguous morality and humanity simply as a as a factory to to generate um, organs uh, for for another person. That's right. And this, I mean, in that article, he says he's already talking about keeping these structures going for way beyond the 14 day limit um, to 40 days or beyond. And, and at the moment, there would be no kind of law governing these things because they wouldn't be covered in the UK. There's the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act. But that really only applies to genuine human embryos and not to these kind of entities which are being synthetic embryos created in a lab. Hmm. Well, we're going to dig in a bit more about the regulatory kind of framework and the for- where the 14-day limit came from and, and that a bit later on. But before we do, one more story I wanted to just to quickly pick up on and share with listeners is about um, gene editing in embryos. So rather than uh, creating a kind of artificial embryo from stem cells or anything like that, this is about actual um, kind of quote, quote natural human <laughs> embryos. Um, but uh, using a, a te- revolutionary technology called CRISPR, um, C-R-I-S-P-R, all capitals, uh, is is uh, there's a scientist in China who is kind of infamously a few years ago announced that he had he he had started uh, using CRISPR to to edit the DNA, the genome of of this this uh, of a twins set of twins, and then kind of grew them to term, and they are alive in the world somewhere in China. Um, do you want to explain a bit more about the significance of that? Yeah, so CRISPR is an astonishingly powerful technology, relatively recently developed, which allows um, a scientist in the lab to design a probe. Uh, I understand it's almost as simple as just typing into, you know, on a laptop and working out what you want to do and pressing the button, and you can almost design these things, whatever you like. And and what that probe then does is it, it take out of the entire human genome the uh, billions of base pairs or so-called you know the letters the billions of letters out of which the human genome is composed it can select a single letter and then in theory change that letter uh, and and so the idea would be that if you have a, a baby who has a, um, a a genetic abnormality which might lead to something like a sickle cell disease, um, you could intervene at the one cell embryo stage uh, or at a very small, very early stage, you identify that one gene which is abnormal, you use CRISPR to fix it back to a normal state, you put the embryo back, you let it grow and then put it back in the womb and effectively you've, you've cured the child of sickle cell disease, they will grow up as a normal healthy baby. That, that's, that's the vision. 
um, and at least in theory, the technology might allow that to happen. This one Chinese scientist claimed that he'd done this, um, and uh, immediately there was a kind of international scandal, and uh, the Chinese authorities rapidly clamped down on him, and he was put in prison, and the whole research group was disbanded. But it it does show that this this kind of of idea of gene editing is an idea whose time has arrived. I guess we should quickly explain why that was so scandalous, even in the kind of world of kind of cutting edge embryology. And and as far as I understand, it's because what he was editing is what's known as the germline. And so he was introducing mutations and kind of conscious changes to the genes in these children, and they will carry that in their DNA forever. And if they have children, we'll pass it on. And it then spreads out eventually enough in enough time throughout the whole kind of human race. And so you're really kind of playing with fire here because if you introduce harmful errors or mutations while you're editing the genome, it's not something that can just be, you know, disposed of in a lab. It, it will filter down, you know, for time memorial. That's right. So the, the normal kind of gene therapy and gene editing, which is, is carried out already quite commonly, is, is called somatic cell gene editing and what you're you're changing then cells might be in the blood or you know in the bone marrow might be in the elsewhere tissues in the lung or whatever but when the patient eventually dies that mutation will die with them it won't be passed on to the next generation but when you change uh, a cell in a in an embryo uh, when you change the DNA in an embryo, that DNA will be copied into every cell of the body, including the gametes, the sperm or the egg, and that means they would then be passed on to their children and to their children and to their children. So, so far, uh, the international community has regarded germline therapy as a kind of line in the sand that we shouldn't go down, although it's, it's been regularly discussed and... There are many scientists saying that, you know, ultimately this is irrational. Um, you know, the kind of argument goes, just to, to go to the side, if we use smallpox virus in order to eradicate smallpox from the world, it's a kind of public health intervention, is that fundamentally different from using germline editing to eradicate sickle cell disease from the world? You know, it, we don't, it doesn't stop us from doing these other major public health interventions is that fundamentally different from germline editing hmm. i guess one of the reasons for concern is is another story you sent me from from nature from a few years ago with a headline that the uh, chilling headline is this crispr editing wreaks chromosomal mayhem in human embryos um studies showing large dna deletions and reshuffling heightened concerns about heritable genome editing so what I'm taking from this is that the the tool CRISPR, which we have been using to edit genes and various things, and now people are playing around in humans, is actually not as precise or not as um, accurate as we thought. And this is reporting on a study that's been done, which showed that 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 the tool made kind of off-target gene mutations, where you know the scientists hoped to to dive into the genome and and change one particular letter among all the code, but discovered actually in doing so they'd unintentionally changed other letters, which um, is clearly and if that you know if these kind of random uncontrolled mutations get introduced into the germline, you know you can see that would have enormous ramifications. 
Exactly. So uh, again, tragically, uh, these kind of things are well recognised. There have been cases in the past where uh, genetic modifications have been made that have been tragically led to cancer uh, in 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 the people in whom these modifications have been made. So, so it is known that you can have unanticipated uh, side effects from targeting. Uh, genes and the great worry, as you say, is that if if this is done uh, in a germline treatment, then you you might have whole groups of children and their offspring, all of whom turned out to have some uh, genetic abnormality, which which really affected their lives. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Okay, so that's a kind of very kind of whistle-stop tour of some of the new developments and kind of cutting-edge breakthroughs in science happening in, in the world of embryology and stem cells. Um, Shall we kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about some of the, the regulatory framework and kind of the philosophy behind a lot of this research um, before we can then talk about what we feel about that as Christians. Yeah, and I, th- I think if we can just do a little bit of history, and, and in particular it's history about the UK, because historically the UK has been always one of the leading players, the science scientists, UK scientists, have been leading players in, um, in this kind of field. And if you can remember, it was in the UK, in England, that the first IVF baby was born, Louise Brown. And, and so... In the uh, early 1980s, there was a lot of growing concern about the possibility of doing things with human embryos and and uh, what was going on and was there any and the fact there was no kind of regulation of, of what scientists were doing in labs was causing a lot of concern. And so the British government set up a a, co- a committee of inquiry called the Warnock Commission, um, and because it was chaired by an Oxford philosopher, Dame Warnock, and that became known as the Warnock Committee, and it turned out to be extraordinarily influential, not just in the UK, but but around the world. Hmm. And this, I guess, it was trying to figure out how do we draw regulatory frameworks around this kind of break, kind of developing uh, science of, of embryology. Um, how do they go about that? What was their kind of how do they come come up with ideas about what was okay and what was not okay? Yeah, so so the, the question was what would it what was it appropriate to do with human embryos? Was it appropriate to grow them in the lab at all? Uh, was it appropriate to grow them in order to do research on them and then destroy them? Um, and how how could the whole process be regulated? And one of the basic questions was how long could you allow? An embryo to grow in the lab, and of course, you know, if you think back, uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, uh, other science fiction stories had sort of uh, had been around for some time, postulating that you would be growing these uh, human embryos into babies in in uh, test tubes, and and those kind of science fiction horrors were all were already there in the public uh, imagination. Mm. Um, so so they. The Warnock Committee um, basically just said, you know, anybody who would like to make a submission to the committee, please do so. And and apparently there was over 200 
submissions uh, from all kinds, some from individuals, some from bodies, quite a lot from churches and Christian organisations. And not surprisingly, it rapidly became apparent that nobody can agree on these fundamental issues. And in particular, nobody can agree on on the moral status, the meaning, the significance of a human embryo growing in a test tube in a lab. And so if we don't know what we think the embryo is, how on earth do we go about as a society drawing up consistent universal rules on what research we can do on it? Yeah, and, and this is where, you know, modern um, Western societies, which are fundamentally pluralistic, where, where you have a whole series of different of people with different beliefs and often mutually contradictory beliefs about the world, the universe and everything, um, ranging from uh, a whole group of scientists who basically can't see what all the fuss is about. This is a collection of cells. They're the same as any other cells and they're growing in a test tube. And why on earth are people getting so excited and so concerned about what we're doing growing uh, growing, in a cell, growing these cells and embryos? through to people from many different religious traditions who felt deeply uh, appalled and felt that it was some kind of sacrilege that these highly abnormal uh, human embryos were being developed. These um, so, so, you know, it is a fundamental problem for modern societies, which I think historically, I mean, you're the historian, you tell me, my understanding is that until the 20th century, it was... Pretty well, every nation had a had a had a primary dominant philosophical religious uh, tradition. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't swear to that. <laughs> uh, over time in history, there's obviously been you know going back thousands of years to the time of Jesus. You know, incredibly pluralistic and 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 mixed societies ethnically and culturally. But I would imagine that you know prior certainly prior to the kind of enlightenment that, that the idea that we needed to pay great heed to the kind of soup of of minority opinions was not massively commonplace and and it was you know it was a might makes right world and the the people group which had the kind of greatest power or greatest numbers i imagine for most of history have been able to impose their own particular version of morality and ethics on everyone else whereas as you say in a kind of in a multicultural liberal democracy uh post-christian society such as we have here in the uk it, it people seem to agree well most people seem to agree that it wouldn't be right just to say right we're going to do whatever the christians say or we're going to do whatever the atheists say there's there's a sense in which we need to try and find some kind of common ground or some kind of way of accommodating this wide array of legitimate but sometimes oppositional belief systems yeah and so what took place in the Warnock Committee is, is something that I think is really very significant and very a very important shift. And that is, and, and Mary Warnock herself as a philosopher uh, talked about this quite openly. Uh, and she said, you know, in retrospect, it became very clear very early on, we were never going to be able to agree as a committee on the moral status of the embryo. <clears throat> and yet... Uh, we needed to come up with something. We needed to come up with a regulatory framework. If there weren't rules, then the public were going to get concerned and it might even lead to sort of social unrest and laboratories would be ransacked by vigilantes and all that kind of stuff. So we've got to have rules that everyone feels happy with. And, 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 and 
what she said was, so the question is not what is right or wrong, but what is socially acceptable? What kind of, in what, as she put it, in what kind of society can we live with our conscience clear? And, um, and therefore what happened was, the question is not what's right or wrong, it's what's acceptable. Time and again, we found ourselves distinguishing not between what would be right or wrong, but between what would be acceptable or unacceptable. So it's a kind of shift away from philosophy and theology towards sociology. Mm. It's basically saying we can't agree and therefore we're not even going to try to come up with a, a vision, what we would call a theology, of what the embryo is. So instead, we're going to create admittedly arbitrary rules so that people don't think it's a free for all, but that there's no, we can't, there's no explicit moral justification for these rules. And, and I guess, and is that true of where they came up with these 14 day, day limit? It's just, we had to draw a line somewhere. So we picked 14 days. That's Otherwise right. it would be so, in the wild west. I mean, there was some vague justification for 14 days because the very earliest development of the central nervous system, um, you know, which in initially starts to you start to see the very earliest development of that in the embryo happens after 14 days and so the 14 days was taken as a sort of absolute limit we can be confident that up to this point there is nothing about the embryo which could be remotely considered as to be like a central nervous system and and therefore we're going to put a line in the sand and say you can keep an embryo in the lab and grow it up to 14 days but it mustn't be allowed to grow beyond 14 days therefore you must destroy it uh, before it reaches the 14 day limit which strikes me just as a side note as a as a quite a curious compromise because you're you're clearly saying you know the, you're not they're not they didn't land on either side of the kind of spectrum you know there's one half who say the embryo from the point of conception is a human being with the same rights and dignity as anyone else and therefore any kind of experimentation on it is barbaric and must be prohibited and then the other side the kind of scientific side a lot of the scientists would say clearly this is just an interesting bunch of cells that we'd love to do some research on and like we should be able to to go as as far as we want or it's certainly to the point you know where it could become viable when re-implanted or something like that and they didn't land there they just said somewhere in the middle that they said the embryo is not precious and unique and 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 akin to you or i you can research on it but you can't do it forever so so you have to destroy it after 14 days even though you know the act of destruction is to people who, who take the kind of sacred point of view is just as upsetting as the act of creation I don't know. I just find the whole thing, it has a kind of surface level logic to it. But at, when you when you unpick it philosophically and theologically, it, it just seems to be slightly incoherent. Well, and I, I, I think at one level, you're absolutely right. But it, it's and it, it was defended as a as a pragmatic solution, as, as a, you know, effectively as a fudge, which then allows the scientists to get on and and do their work. And of course, let's not forget, you know, these scientists are not primarily wanting to play God for the sake of it. I mean, there is a huge amount of pressure coming from people who, with infertility, and for those, you know, potentially with other uh, genetic abnormalities, and with, and, and potentially the science could be transformative, as indeed we know it has been. We know that IVF 
at one level has been very, very successful. And there are probably millions of children around the world <clears throat> who are born as a result of the kind of experiments that these scientists we're doing so so that there is a strong humanitarian pressure and it's often presented as why should some religious fundamentalists put an absolute roadblock and say absolutely no way when we have this enormous uh, possibility of of doing good so we've had that 14 day limit basically since the 80s and as that has stood the test of time, it's been written into law in many countries, including the UK and in, in other countries, even where it's not written into law, it's kind of widely adopted um, as by kind of regulatory authorities and, and researchers. Yeah, so that was the interesting thing, really, that the 14-day limit was really created pretty well by Warnock. And yet, as, as other uh, scientists and regulators around the world looked to the UK, they said, well, why not? Why don't we follow that 14-day limit. So pretty well around the world, in, t in these international collaborations, scientists have agreed until very recently. And it's only just in the last year or two that that 14-day limit is now being seriously questioned. I guess in part that's because, as I understand, researchers actually weren't able to keep human embryos alive in a petri dish for more than 14 days, even if they wanted to. For, for most of the last 30 years so it it's been a slightly kind of um it's been a moot point whereas in the last literally in the last three or four years it's now become possible to to that we've got better at keeping embryos alive in the lab and and therefore there have been projects which have had to kind of artificially terminate the experiments and destroy the embryos at 14 days to avoid breaching the standard that's right and so just in last year, in, in 2021, the International Society for Stem Cell Research recommended that the 14-day rule should be relaxed and that uh, scientists could propose to grow human embryos beyond 14 days and that each case would be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. There would be some kind of review but and there would be no ultimate limit. Each case would be taken on its merits and... Um, you know, scientists and regulators would agree, in this case, you can go to 21 days or 28 days or 35 days or whatever, that, you know, the 14-day limit is now effectively uh, dead. Um, that hasn't yet been kind of written into law in this country, has it? Is, it, is, there, is there pressure from scientists to now amend the, the Act, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act in the UK to, to, to extend the 14-day limit here? Well, there is, but as you know, not surprisingly, there have been other things going on like uh, COVID and um, war and, and everything else. And as a result, uh, the attempt to um, uh, to change the law has, has rather been put on the back burner. But I think there's absolutely no doubt that within the foreseeable future, there will be a strong pressure being exerted in the UK and elsewhere around the world to, to change the law to allow... Um, embryos to grow beyond 14 days and the reason for that is that some very important things start happening beyond 14 days including the development of the central nervous system so uh, by growing embryos in the um, in the lab at this stage we potentially we can learn much more about how the central nervous system and other body systems are being developed in this critical phase and so what do you think we're kind of running out of time here but but and we'll talk about this more more next week in the second part of this kind of episode series but just briefly what do you think is the kind of moral theological 
philosophical implications of, of this push to extend the 14-day limit? What, why should we care as Christians, most of us probably not biomedical scientists, why should we care about this kind of esoteric debate within, within embryology regulation? Well, I do see it as a very significant uh, liberalisation of the law because for all its many deficiencies, I think the, um, the way that the Warnock committee recommended that the uh, regulation should work has actually provided some kind of uh, framework and particular limits on what scientists have been allowed to do and I think once you take away that 14-day limit um, I suspect it's going to be extremely difficult if not impossible to replace it with say a 28-day limit I think I th so I think that we are now entering a new phase where potentially it would be it will become possible to to grow human embryos almost indefinitely uh, in the laboratory as long as you the scientists can come up with some kind of justification so I, I, I do think this is a, a significant advance uh, in and liberalization and I think you know it's going to become really important for us as Christians to try uh, to respond and, and think about this and that's certainly something I'd, I'd like to discuss next week um, how do we uh, engage particularly where there are things going on which we feel deeply concerned about but which could have real benefit you know it raises this question of cooperation with evil doesn't it which we've we've talked about before in in the in the context of covid vaccines yeah there's lots of really um difficult challenges coming up you know put bluntly you know would can we accept as christians a future world in which you know all kid all transplant organs are perfect and work perfectly but they've been grown in kind of bizarrely cloned embryos in artificial wombs um you know how do we work out the the moral value of something which might have have it had its origins in in research that we find distasteful or even immoral but has clear kind of benefits difficult questions like that um we're, we're look, looking forward to picking up this conversation next week um but thanks everyone for listening um as always uh you can find more resources and a lot of this kind of stuff we're talking about on john's website that's uh, johnwyatt.com uh you can get in touch with us to suggest things to talk about or or um have uh, disagreements or share your feedback on the things we've been saying you can email uh, molad m-o-l-a-d at premiere.org.uk but otherwise um thanks for listening and we'll speak to you next week you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable 